Welcome to the Pragmatism, Empiricism, and American Religious Thought Group session in honor of Dr. Cornel West's book, The American Invasion of Philosophy. I am very honored to preside over this session that reflects on the significance of Dr. West's contribution to the canon of American pragmatism by a start stellar lineup of young scholars for whom Dr. West has been so important in their critical thinking on race and intersectionalities of sex, class, and gender. But more importantly, about the critical moment in our democratic experiment and our political culture, which is in such disarray, fragmentation, culture wars, and just downright crises. This situation makes the American invasion of philosophy even more relevant today than it has been before. So the panel includes Kevin Wolf, who will be discussing the notion of prophetic pragmatism. Clifton Granby takes up radical holism. Julius Crump reads the West in light of Robert Gooding Williams. And Xavier Pickett argues for a reading of West in light of William James' profile of the saint in varieties of religious experience. Our session would go to three o'clock, at which time we'll have a business meeting to follow. So time is really important for us to keep in consideration, and the panelists have all agreed to a 20-minute time limit. I want to thank Xavier Pickett for organizing this panel and also Bill Hart, Victor Anderson, and the Pragmatist and Empiricism Group for this tremendous opportunity. I think it's a fitting time to return to Cornell West's American Evasion of Philosophy. Reassessing its significance is timely given the recent tendency in public intellectual discourse to dismiss West out of hand. Beyond this, I think there's a lasting contribution to be found in West's model of philosophical engagement, particularly at the level of methodology. My paper today focuses on that approach what I call his radical holism. Before delving into its details, I wish to say something about the context of this paper, and that has something to do with my own biography. My introduction into West's thinking over a decade ago came within the context of institutionalized denigration. His work was said to suffer from too many names, too many traditions, too much rhetoric, and not enough discipline. That's what many of the philosophers who first instructed me during my undergraduate and early graduate years maintain, and this had everything to do with the fact that their idealized versions of rigor, analyticity, and clarity were not championed by this public philosopher, by this Parhesia-speaking gadfly. West did not explicitly trade in their modes of disciplinary training, their norms of canon formation, nor even their dominant styles of inquiry. Here was a scholar who spoke and wrote for the public, who was concerned with social awakening and democratic transformation. He therefore was not to be judged nor seriously engaged. A decade ago, public legibility was said to be the marker of academic illegitimacy. Of course, times change and markets do too, so that now public legibility and popular engagement are, are widely encouraged in a number of institutions and settings. In a public sphere marked by competition and rivalry, intellectual humility, gracefulness, and sensitivity are in short supply. To my mind, such realities only deepen the timeliness of our return to evasion. 
So I'll argue that the particular mode of engagement enacted in evasion is deeply philosophical and that it is guided by West's commitment to a radical holism. The intensity of West's own willingness to wrestle with the deepest dimensions of human experience leads him to an appreciation of the very limits of rational discourse and by extension, the rational pretensions of many professionalized discourses. With each thinker, West gives a bit more of his own position away while pointing to the shortcomings of his interlocutors. In what follows, I sketch rather briefly just what I mean by radical holism and why I think it's important for any evaluation of evasion significance. I close with a few criticisms or comments that I think West's holism could accommodate based on his own approach to radically open-ended inquiry. Now, originally, I'd hoped to offer an account of what the legacy of pragmatism looks like when the lessons of evasion aren't taken seriously. And so I was going to offer a reading of Richard Bernstein's account, Pragmatic Turn, which leaves out uh, West's vision, but I don't have time for that, but we can talk about it later. So at a general level, philosophical holism is typically, typically conceived as, and here I'm quoting Robert Audi, any of a wide variety of theses that affirm either the appeal or greater reality or the explanatory necessity of the whole of some system in relation to its parts. Such an approach resists the kind of atomism which regards an item as knowledge knowable or best explained or more thoroughly interpreted through sustained analysis into distinct separable elementary non-interacting components. Atomism of this sort often leads to a kind of foundationalism or skepticism. There's either something steady, secure, and foundational to ground belief or knowledge, such as perception or sense experience more generally, perhaps reason or the proper deployment of inference, memory, or introspection. Of course, if it turns out that these foundations can't be trusted, then skepticism takes center stage and with it philosophical quests for certainty. Here the pursuit of problems framed largely along Cartesian lines reigns supreme. Now the phenomenological tradition through Husserl responds by saying that we need to study the structure of experience. The dominant Anglo tradition in America responds with an analysis of language, initially under the influence of logical positivism and breakthroughs in symbolic logic, and later under the, under the influence of Quine and the later Wittgenstein, this focus shifts to the role of linguistic practices and the social norms of convention and use which govern them. Whereas much of early mid to 20th century analytic philosophy focused on trying to translate and reduce observation sentences into logical atomistic form, the figures in West's fifth chapter of evasion, the decline and resurgence of American pragmatism called much of this project into question. As West writes, W.V. Quine's epistemological holism shifted the basic units of empirical significance from isolated sentences to systems of sentences, which is to say, to wider webs of theories. For Quine, our statements about the external world must face the tribunal of sense experience, not individually, but only as a corporate body. Furthermore, Quine writes in another passage quoted by West, that it becomes folly to seek a boundary between synthetic statements which hold contingently on experience and analytic statements which hold come what may or by necessity. Any statement, therefore, can be held true come what may if we make drastic enough adjust adjustments elsewhere in our system. So Quine's holism, his recognition of the inextricable relations between parts and wholes, also informs his naturalizing account of epistemology, which was a sea change in analytic philosophy. Properly understood, Quine thinks that epistemology is a precinct, a chapter of psychology, which for him amounts to natural science. Epistemology then simply aims to study natural phenomena, physical human subjects. 
This naturalizing of epistemology, epistemic subjectivity, opened the way politically for a number of breakthroughs in feminist epistemology focused around social configurations of power in the 80s and 1990s. And yet Quine isn't an ideal model for West since, quote, his allegiance to physics and the natural sciences inappropriately limits the boundaries of what might possibly be said to constitute truth and reality. For all of Quine's emphasis on connectivity and holism, traces of positivism and atomism still remain. As West reads him, Quine grants too much authority to the physical sciences, allowing them to improperly constrain the boundaries of truth and reality. In short, West concludes that Quine has a deep distrust of the social and historical dimensions of human existence. Thus, his breakthrough remains limited in its own suppositions in his leanings toward positivism. So notwithstanding West's title, The American Evasion of Philosophy, and what he often calls the American Evasion of Epistemology-Centered Philosophy, there's still, ironically, quite a bit of epistemology at stake in West analyses and for the thinkers he engages. Thus, by retrieving the language of radical holism, this continuity, even as I take care to mark West's sharp departure from the Anglo tradition, this continuity is rendered visible. Quine, of course, isn't the only figure included in chapter five of evasion. West also provides thoughtful commentaries on Nelson Goodman, Wilfred Sellers, and Richard Rorty. Goodman offers a non-pragmatist, aesthetically inspired, yet logically incisive account of convention in and through which West finds a nourishing antidote against the temptations of reductionism. In an essay entitled Just the Facts, Ma'am, Goodman himself notes, always, almost always, some stance or another is adopted. We have to hold something steady for a while as a working basis. Although a stance may be taken anywhere and shifted often without notice, it is not arbitrary. Most of our stances and shifts of stance are instilled by practice. He goes on to say that where a choice of stance is more deliberate, it may involve complex considerations of simplicity, convenience, suitability to context, efficacy for a purpose, and accessibility by those with whom we must communicate. Here Goodman points toward the radically contingent nature of all con conventional engagements with the world, conventional and conversational engagements with others. The practical character of our positionality and stance and the constraints we assume by our choice to be in conversation with this group of persons and not others, all of this matters. Our stances have much to do with where we wish to locate authority and with whom we wish to be in conversation, to attempt to convince and to share fellowship. In what context, toward what ends and with what goals in mind? Time doesn't allow me to engage sellers or Rorty on these themes, um, but I will say uh, a bit how they go beyond Quine in important ways for Wes. For Sellers, this involves his emphasis on the normativity of all propositional language, the practice of giving and asking for reasons, and the contextual and theory-laden nature of all perceptions. Rorty succeeds in offering a useful, if stylized reading of important moments in the Anglo-American philosophical tradition, and this, in West's eyes, begins to account for the marginalization of professionalized philosophy and its declining significance in the public realm. It also points to the contingency of our styles of reasoning and modes of discourse. But West ultimately charges Rorty with being insufficiently historical, not fully sensitive to the relations of power and capital that animate the philosophical practices that he wishes to place under examination. Rorty, on this view, lacks an account of complex forms of sociality, 
as Wes himself puts it, Rorty's limited historicism needs Marx, Durkheim, Weber, Beauvoir, and Du Bois. In short, his narrative needs a more subtle historical and sociological perspective. And here, once again, we hit upon a crucial dimension of West radical holism. It's deeply historical, materialist, and sociological character. Of course, in West's account of prophetic pragmatism, we see a more explicit accounting of its ethical, political, and existential character, which he often associates with certain religious and cultural traditions. But what is important to note about this claim is that West, at the methodological level, is committed to a non-foundationalist, open-ended, largely revisable, and expanding version of holism, one that's social, historical, ethical, and even existential in character. This is its radical dimension. In his critique of Rorty, West notes that, and I quote here, the crucial task is to pursue social and heterogeneous genealogy, that is, detailed accounts of the emergence, development, sustenance, and decline of vocabularies, discourses, and practices in the natural and human sciences against the background of dynamic changes in specific modes of production, political conflicts, cultural configurations, and personal turmoil. Now, what I also find striking about this vision and the theoretical labor, the intellectual sweat that it supposes, is how deeply West is committed to thinking carefully about the theoretical insights put forward by thinkers with whom he shares fundamental disagreements. West is not committed to scientism. He's not committed to logical empiricism, yet he sits at the feet of those who are so persuaded. Put differently, West could have gone straight from his fourth chapter on mid-century intellectuals to his engagement with Richard Rorty and into his own account of prophetic pragmatism. Recall that it's Rorty who, in West's view, needs to take seriously figures in chapter four, Sidney Hook, C. Wright Mills, Du Bois, Niebuhr, Lionel Trilling. This is the American wing of that radical sociological imagination that he thinks Rorty lacks. But it is West who patiently and carefully works through the positions of Quine, Goodman, and Sellers, even tracking down obscure footnotes. He manages to learn from those whom he shares limited affinity. What's radical about West holism then isn't merely its deeply social and historical character, his radicalism also involves a capacity to listen carefully to those who don't share in his vision, to be open to criticism and revision through his interactive engagement with a diverse set of conversation partners, to be intellectually vulnerable, willing to be pierced by the truth that one encounters, is to avoid the very masturbatory delusions that James Baldwin used to lament. West eschews academic tribalism, itself an outgrowth of a kind of narrow-minded atomism, and he extracts the wisdom of the very thinkers who have been more committed to cleverness than the traditional pursuit of wisdom. To put it crudely, West observes, most philosophers are neither trained to converse with literary critics, historians, and social theorists, nor ready to give up on the secure self-image of academicians engaged in serious research. And yet this cultural critic, engages them carefully nonetheless. So I think the generosity of West's intellectual model is deeply instructive for scholars today. It's probably not professionally expedient, but it is spiritually and intellectually instructive, especially for those who would quickly dismiss the merits of his work, often without reading the text that he has engaged. This relates to another point about criticism. The vastness of West's undertaking necessarily requires that he leave out certain details 
His emphasis on holism, not analytical atomism, means that the synecdochic imagination takes primacy. West is more concerned with synthesis and reconstruction, with putting things together and not tearing things apart, where most of the academy is devoted to the latter. One doesn't need a sense of vision to tear things down. Passing familiarity with the hatchet will do. What this also means is that the vastness of West's project necessarily leaves him more exposed to criticism and to the temptation of those who would tear him apart. Yet the underbelly of his readings, writings and interpretations of major figures, and even obscure ones, is often larger than the entire corpus of many of his critics. And that's worth keeping in mind. Few among us have willfully exposed and subjected our own ideals, even our public selves, to such scrutiny. With such observations in mind, I venture to make my own observations, my own criticisms of evasion. I think West wouldn't have it any other way. As suggested before, far from evading epistemology-centered questions, West radical holism opens the way for new and creative ways of reframing and thinking through epistemology-centered questions. Here I'm thinking of recent work involving embodied social perception, the relationship between epistemic authority and various breakdowns in social trust, epistemologies of ignorance, especially those involving race, gender, sex, and class, the fostering of subversive practices of epistemic resistance, and the challenges that attend individual and communal practices of knowledge, making, and transformation. Such work has actually been taken up by radical pragmatists, radical pluralists like Jose Medina. I also find it striking that the uniquely gendered nature of domination isn't directly confronted. West is always careful to make mention of misogyny, homophobia, and the various forms of violence against women and LGBTQ persons, but he doesn't dwell on his own masculinity, its, fluent, its influence, its blinding effects, its consequences for his own thinking and how he inhabits and goes about his own work. The masculine dimensions of professionalized philosophy likewise are not or noticeably under-theorized. And so I think this is crucial for any holistic account of our efforts to imagine and work toward a more just and equitable world within and outside the academy. Finally, it seemed to me that pragmatic emphases on action and activity don't fully account for the significance of rest, pause, and retreat. I take this to be constitutive, even revolutionary, a constitutive, even revolutionary dimension in the construction of particular social and personal ontologies and in the creation of subversive forms of knowledge. Take, for example, Howard Thurman. With John Dewey's How We Think in mind, Thurman argues that reflective felicity calls for more than the judicious discernment of competing paths. For Howard Thurman, it also demands the encountering of problems and paradoxes that are worthwhile, alongside an appropriate grasp of what constitutes such work. For Thurman, not everything deserves equal pause. Adequate response requires rhythm. So when Thurman writes of the importance of waiting moments and he talks to the necessity of pausing, he isn't simply repeating the biblical dictum, be still and know that God is God. He's also demonstrating how we might responsibly come to know anything about the texts which confront us. In this way, time is an index of intimacy and proximity too. The slower one's pace, the longer one's encounter. Deliberative rest. Deliberative quietness is crucial for the work of radical holism. As Wittgenstein remarks, I really want my copious punctuation marks to slow down the speed of your reading because I should like to be read slowly as I myself read. 
And yet the commerce of our technological age encourages no such thing. Market time is filled with swift transitions. But I think it's worth resisting this cultural pattern of rivalry and competition, of commodity exchange and intellectual hustle. To my mind, contemplation is a break which opens and slows a serviceable fountain of renewal and resistance. Through it, we come to appreciate the earthiness of our situation, that sedimented yet revisable mass of circumstances which constrains and enriches. Howard Thurman didn't explicitly make West's pragmatist canon, but he's at the center of mine. That reality is very much a product of the trajectory afforded by West pluralistic and holistic imagination. This is why it's so dangerous for one's introduction into the thought of Cornell West to be filtered through think pieces, sound bites, and popular commentaries, or even a brood of certain academic philosophers and professionals. It's dangerous in part because one risks having to unlearn the biases one unknowingly picks up, as I myself did, and dangerous yet still because West's scholarly example resists easy summary. Such engagements simply aren't true to life. They, by necessity, fail to capture the complexity of our human predicament. And West himself would grant that each of us, in our fleshly details, is resistant to quick and easy summaries. It's ironic that when West has gotten in trouble publicly, it's had to do with the quickness with which he summarized folk. So each of us is resistant to quick and easy summaries, not merely as scholars, but as human beings suspended between life and death, caught up in circumstances not entirely of our own choosing, and yet uniquely endowed with the capacities to think and to act within the light of the utopic imaginings and ethical ideals we call futures, with the very best of our traditions as a guide, and with the pitfalls of our usable past as cautionary signs. Our present for West is to be engaged vitally through the ongoing pursuit of wisdom and a self-critical love of justice, which entails a sensitivity to the witness of those who are suffering, but not yet without joy, humor, and art. The radical holism of Cornell West points to such a vision and his personal touch as a human being embodies it. The remarkable achievement of West's charisma is that every detail seems to matter in his presence and in his corpus even if we know through his wisdom that that can't be the whole truth. Good afternoon. The title of my talk is What's Left of Evasion After Gooding Williams? critique in service of commitments. In comparison to Leon Weiselter and Michael Eric Dyson's infamous characterizations of West's social and political commentary, Robert Gooding Williams's extensive book review essay of evasion is rather tame. To his credit, Gooding Williams's eminent criticism does not engage in ad hominem. To be sure though, Gooding Williams's criticism is incisive. After first reading it some 10 years ago, among other more ominous musings, I came to an even greater appreciation of Cornel West's courage. In this brief talk, I am to put that enabling virtue on display by serving as a mediator of sorts between two of my most cherished intellectual interlocutors. 
Who among us can remain perpetually passive when one of their best friends chides the other, especially when the stakes of the debate and the cost of passivity are not merely academic? So like the fool that I am and the fools that I hope you become, let's all rush in where angels fear to tread. In his captivating review, Gooding Williams argues that evasion has two aims, both of which fail. He claims that Weth is both, is both unable to show how his genealogy of pragmatism culminates in prophetic pragmatism and also why West's voice and public persona are the proper expression or extension of this genealogy. Lest you think this, his criticism is for naught, these perceived failures highlight his pragmatic reasons for supporting West's social and political ambitions. Gooding Williams intended his criticism to be in service of ideas and political commitments they both share, shared and to my knowledge still share. He affirms West's leftist and black freedom fighting commitments but critically assesses at least the following seven aspects of evasion, all of which are meant to support such commitments. So one, West claims that his genealogical method is Foucauldian. Gooding Williams suggests otherwise because West uses organic metaphors, concepts which Foucault explicitly rejects. Two, West uses Emerson to claim that words are useful tactics and devices. Gooding Williams interprets Emerson's understanding of words as self-referential tactics that often contradict each other. Three, West claims that Du Bois is a pragmatist. Gooding Williams provides four reasons to the contrary, which thereby jeopardizes West's attempt to link pragmatism to otherwise oppressed black freedom-fighting political constituencies. Four, West attempts to tether an intellectual or academic discourse to black politics with a reading of Dewey on democracy, which mythologizes America. Gooding Williams conversely claims that Dewey's understanding of democracy, creative democracy, contradicts that of Du Bois, the most crucial figure in West genealogy. Five, West articulates the black church as a site which can mobilize non-Christian political constituencies. Gooding Williams claims that West cannot combine his Christian, democratic socialist, pragmatist, and black freedom freedom commitments into a singular non-personal narrative. Six, West depicts Martin Luther King Jr as an exemplary American figure who mobilized polities other than the black church. Gooding Williams claims that King could be interpreted to have mobilized others. However, no such figure could mobilize contradictory constituencies in the 21st century. And seven, West stakes out an all embracing moral vision that could be motivated by the idea of prophetic pragmatism. Gooding Williams laments the fact that West's prophetic pragmatism cannot help oppressed and marginalized persons who need practical assistance differentiating needs from desires and identity forming processes based on the particular, their particular material and cultural context. In sum, Gooding Williams argues that evasion misidentifies the methodological aims of Foucault, misinterprets and misappropriates evasion's central figures, mythologizes America, grossly overestimates the political efficacy of the black church, and ultimately, I quote here, is a pragmatism without consequence. Perhaps a defense of West could be marshaled on all seven aspects of the criticism. 
Though I won't offer responses to all seven in this short talk, my reading of Evasion proposes that West would concede the difficulties associated with two through six. Namely, the species of the black church to which he refers uh, certainly seems to me to be a remnant. Accenting who West recently calls the radical king was necessary. Emerson and Dewey have contestable legacies which are not amenable to marginalized constituencies. And it is indeed difficult to evade philosophy while simultaneously hoping to use an academic discourse like pragmatism to mobilize various forms of racial, gendered, and economic empowerment. Specifically, Gooding Williams doubts that West can achieve black empowerment if he appropriates a history of pragmatism that venerates America, embraces religion, and romanticizes the old left. A left that values American labor unions and what West calls non-Marxism. Gooding Williams' trenchant criticisms notwithstanding, given the importance of method to evasion, how might West address one and seven, namely the question about genealogy and the plausibility of a universal moral discourse? Genealogy is meant to account for the constitution of knowledges and discourses without recourse to a transcendental subject or the consistently same identifiable subject in time or human history. By asking what West calls the Kantian question, what are the conditions for the possibility of, Foucault could be linked to a conception of validity that is positioned outside the social practices of humans. According to West, Foucault has a negative conception of resistance and critique. That stated, Foucault is mistaken, West claims, in asserting that any attempt to posit democratic ideals as guides to political action will necessarily entail a form of subjection and unhealthy skepticism. West uses genealogy as a method to keep his confluence of Christian, non-Marxist, pragmatist, democratic allegiances insulated from specific criticisms that attempt to elide the question of whether some public discourses and formations of democracy are more legitimate than others. Gooding Williams has no such conception of critique, in large part because of his pragmatic reasons for the political commitments he and West share. Interestingly enough, Gooding Williams construes prophetic pragmatism as a universal moral discourse that brackets negative conceptions of resistance and critique, which on his account need to be the starting point for their desired political commitments. In my estimation, Gooding Williams' criticism begs at least two questions. Is prophetic pragmatism a universal moral discourse? And how might one conduct an intellectually serious moral discourse that begins rather than ends with contradictions. I argue that West and Gooding Williams differ on where to begin because of their different interpretations of Foucault's ethical import for politically engaged communities. And also they differ because of his understanding of the political value of postmodern discourses which gestures towards addressing the plausibility of moral discourse, universal moral discourse. Please keep in mind that in what follows, I am not attempting to answer these questions or resolve what I take to be perennial philosophical problems. I endeavor to register their disagreement. They seem to me to be peers in the relevant senses of the word who are asking the same kinds of philosophical and political questions. And as I endeavor to register this agreement, I also invite them to think with rather than against each other. In part one, I review Gooding Williams' critique of evasion. In part two, I expand West's explanation of ge genealogy 
by his critique of Foucault, and then supplement West's explanation by indexing an argument from pragmatism's reconstructive project. Then I attempt to make good on my claim that West appropriates Foucault's genealogy as a means to struggle against what Habermas calls normatively unassailable power formations such as deliberative democracy. Now, insofar as deliberative democracy can or should be understood as either normatively unassailable or a power formation, when those who are neither privily, pri privy nor privileged in certain presumably public deliberations struggle to voice their concerns through their own religious or moral idioms, more often than not, they need not be chided for doing so. West is not offering, it seems to me, a value-free historical explanation of a genealogy that necessarily leads to success, prophetic pragmatism, the black church, liberal Protestantism, or even an Emersonian theodicy. Put a bit differently, especially for the sake of a universal moral discourse or black politics, whatever the left is or is not in this political climate, it need not leave these ideas and ideals behind. What then is left of evasion after Gooding Williams? Well, for one, racial and democratic matters, both figuratively and uh, literally. Because after all, Weston Gooding Williams are concerned with modernity in America where race and democracy have always mattered. Secondly, what's left of evasion? Literally, I hope that more religious communities, persons, and counterpublics are to the left of those on offer in evasion. I hope these communities engage publics and enact politics in heretofore unseen ways. And thirdly, for the express purpose of this paper, what's left of evasion, genealogy as critique in service of those committed to the struggle for freedom. So Gooding Williams on evasion. Gooding Williams claims that evasion evades genealogy, Emerson, Du Bois, America, and prophetic pragmatism. By beginning his narrative with a single patriarchal potency named Emerson, Gooding Williams argues that West errs in trying to disguise deep, incommensurable intellectual differences and issues between many, if not all, of the figures included in evasion. Where West ends his treatment of Emerson by depicting his account of words as useful, Gooding Williams views words as destabilizing and as a cause for concern given the way in which West's narrative develop, develops. Because West uses genealogy for purposes that Foucault explicitly rejects, Gooding Williams argues that West, quote, stops short of a Foucaultian or Emersonian critique of his historical narrative and so leaves the integrity of his narrative intact, unquote. Therefore, he claims that evasion should not be read as a text which is meant to discern the will to truth. For Gooding Williams, such a will involves deconstructing one's own text in ways that would engender authorial continuity throughout the narrative and eminently plausible interpretations of the figures, themes, and ideas therein. Because he acknowledges that continuity and plausibility is in the eye of the beholder, Gooding Williams claims that the one to whom this narrative is beholden is the public persona and voice consonant with a Westian invitation. The invitation is to construct, inspire, and provoke otherwise black constituencies. So that the invitation won't seem unique to West and therefore alien to the canonical figures of pragmatism, many of whom are in evasion, West uses Du Bois to justify his characterization of pragmatism as capable of addressing and mobilizing 
domestic and foreign oppressed communities. According to Gooding Williams, the success or failure of his endeavor to tether pragmatism to these communities is based on the plausibility of his interpretation of Du Bois. As I intimated early on in this talk, he claims that West's characterization of Du Bois as a Jamesian organic intellectual is implausible and fails in the following ways. Du Bois evades Hegel more so than Descartes' epistemological quest for certainty. Du Bois was concerned with self-revelation and social inclusion, not individuality, and as a result was not engaged in a quest of self-reinvention. Du Bois was not an anti-idealist, partly because he cared most about the transfer of power from elites to, ma to the masses. Furthermore, because Du Bois did not harbor a notion of self-creative democracy, West cannot justifiably portray his voice as a repetition of Du Bois' own. West cannot simply incorporate Du Bois' voice into his genealogy in order to surreptitiously include black persons, women, and international considerations into a mythic American story and public dialogue of which many of them are unfamiliar. Given the gap between their relative unfamiliarity and West and evasions narrative discontinuities and interpretive implausibilities, again, Gooding Williams claims that West does not succeed at constructing, inspiring, and provoking black constituencies. Moreover, Gooding Williams asserts what I've called the Westian invitation as filtered through a Westian Foucault and a Westian Du Bois, which does not give, which does not give the self-avowed pragmatists among us good reasons to go out there precisely because we are in here. That is, reading evasions won't impress upon us the imperative to meaningfully engage the needs of oppressed peoples on account of his genealogy of pragmatism. That certainly could be the case. However, I'm not sure the converse is true. Because the four of us are engaging the figures, themes, and debates in the pragmatist canon because of invasion, and not just because of West's voice and public persona, perhaps something about evasion's Westian invitation to understand genealogy as an imperative to historicize ideas and posit prophetic pragmatism as a universalizable moral discourse, perhaps evasion is redeemable. West on genealogy. West appreciates Foucault's deep historical consciousness because it allows one to reject prevailing ideas of history in the name of genealogy. In his essay, Race and Social Theory, he argues that a genealogical inquiry into the discursive and extra discursive conditions for the possibility of racist practices would yield micro institutional and macro structural analyses of these practices. While West introduces a version of the Kantian question here, claiming that conditions can be extra discursive gets him off two Kantian hooks, the proverbial transcendental hook and the hook of neo-Kantians who claim that language use is necessary. The conditions can function in ways that cannot always be accounted for through deliberative language use or transcendental self-introspection. Nevertheless, West acknowledges that he may very well be torn on the horns of a familiar dilemma. Gooding Williams, as I suggested above, thinks West has no time for leisure, so to speak. He cannot rest on these horns. By laying claim to a universal more discourse, Gooding Williams argues that West should resolve the dilemma. As a radical historicist who argues that evading or demystifying philosophy requires one to delve into the complexities of culture and politics, how can he avoid the horns of essentialism or necessity and simple relativism? 
West argues that the middle ground between the horns is contextualism. Some claims are better than others, but are still relative to a context. Firstly, he says, because they always, they're always open to revision, which is to say it could be wrong. And secondly, because they are self-critical and therefore always attempting to call the worst of these theories into question, unquote. The means by which this contextualism is negotiated is neither always discursive nor rarely consensual. Sometimes the means is, re is repressive. And as West would argue, these means are the result of ideas and practices propagated by some of pragmatism's canonical figures. These practices too often ignore the latent power differentials in non-discursive ways deliberation often proceeds. Although Foucault glosses the issue of power differently than as power differentials, West calls Foucault to account for ascribing agency to discourses. In so doing, West takes himself to offer a different kind of genealogy than Foucault. Different than what Gooding Williams suggests for the following two ways. First, West would likely accuse Gooding Williams of committing a version of the genetic fallacy. The purported originators of an idea or concept do not hold the intellectual property rights over the concept in perpetuity. With proper qualifications, it seems to me that a concept can be used more or less as one sees fit. Though I won't explore today, West qualifies his usage of genealogy by combining and contrasting it with his non-Marxist account that he calls genealogical materialist. Second, for Foucault, genealogy seems more about a former discourse broadly construed than actual discourses and even less so about deliberative discourse. Again, the problem West claims is that Foucault ascribes an agency to discourses, disciplines, and techniques. In claiming that Foucaultian discourses are agential, West runs into the problem of describing what kind of intention these discourses might exhibit because West says, quoting, there indeed are multiple unintended consequences and unacknowledged antecedent conditions of human actions that both produce and are produced by institutions and structures. In a, in a criticism that seems standard now, West claims that Foucault is interested in the operations of powers only insofar as they can help him answer the subject-centered Kantian question. This question downplays human agency and agents, especially those committed to oppressed and marginalized communities. Maybe Gooding Williams would agree with West's two criticisms of Foucault. At a very basic level though, I could imagine Gooding Williams suggesting that Foucault's genealogies of race and sexuality have done more to motivate academics to construct, inspire, and provoke oppressed communities. My conjecture notwithstanding, I would simply say that given his qualified use of genealogy, the Westian Foucault and Gooding Williams's Foucault Mutually, mutually implicate each other's method. Thank you. Hello, hello, hello. All right, trying to, how's that? In the American Invasion of Philosophy, Cornel West not only introduces a significant account of pragmatism, but also proposes his emendations to what he views as limitations to the tradition. Central to West's account of pragmatism is the place of social criticism. He says that 
as a mode of reflection that evades the epistemology-centered impetus of, Europe of the European philosophical tradition, pragmatism results in a conception of philosophy as a form of cultural criticism. However, for all of its merits, West argues that pragmatism has not lived up to its progressive potential. In fact, he contends that it is in need of an explicit political mode of cultural criticism that refines and revises Emerson's theodicy and his sense of vision, his utopian impulse, yet rechannel it through Dewey's conception of creative democracy and Du Bois's social structural analysis of the limits of capitalist democracy. It is here that West introduces his notion of prophetic pragmatism. Not only does it fulfill the affirmation criteria, but his prophetic pragmatism exceeds them by confronting candidly the tragic sense found in Hook and Trilling, the religious version of the Jamesian strenuous mood in Niebuhr, and the tortuous grappling with vocation in the intellectual in Mills. A tall order indeed. For our purposes today, I want to illuminate the ways in which West prophetic pragmatism success is predicated on a criticism of Dewey, particularly Dewey's lack of a tragic sensibility, and question West's claim that prophetic pragmatism's ability to overcome optimism he sees stemming from the uh, Emersonian theodicy at the heart of the pragmatic tradition. I raise questions which implicate prophetic pragmatism in some of the very criticisms to which West subjects the American pragmatist tradition. In some ways, my concerns build on a debate some of us have been having with West for a while now. The, deba the debate is framed around whether Dewey has a tragic sensibility. But though I agree with Eddie Glaude's response in A Shade of Blue and Melvin Rogers's in The Undiscovered Dewey that Dewey has a tragic sensibility, I advance the argument in a different direction today by questioning the term behind West's own position. That is, as opposed primarily to defending Dewey from West's criticisms, I see if prophetic pragmatism can actually withstand those criticisms. My main question concerns the relationship between West's notion of prophetic pragmatism and Christianity. I ask in short, if prophetic pragmatism is ultimately too optimistic. West argues powerfully that Dewey is the culmination of the tradition of American pragmatism. And while this is a significant achievement for both Dewey and the tradition, because after Dewey, quote, to be a pragmatist is to be a social critic, literary critic, or a poet, in short, a participant in cultural criticism and cultural creation. It is also a limitation as Dewey's culmination remains rooted in the optimism of the Emersonian theodicy. On this note, West calls Emerson the inventor of the American religion and Dewey is its Luther, who views America as the best exemplar in time. West delineates Dewey's culmination of the Emersonian theodicy on three counts. Uh, West articulates the first premise of the Emersonian theodicy as maintaining that the basic nature of things, 
the fundamental way the world is, is congenial to and supportive of the moral aims and progress of the chosen or exceptional people, i.e. Americans. One finds the way Dewey incorporates this premise in his 1925 Karras lectures, for instance, when he says, quote, when we have used our thought to its utmost and have thrown into the moving, unbalanced balance of things our puny strength, we know that though the universe slay us still, we trust. For our lot is one with whatever is good in existence. The second premise of the Emersonian theodicy is that the basic nature of things is itself incomplete and in flux, always the result of and a beckon to the experimental makings, workings, and doings of human beings. This premise is central to Dewey's thinking, particularly to his conception of both experience and democracy. In response to the rationalist and idealist conception of experience, Dewey writes, for example, quote, what experience suggests about itself is a genuinely objective world which enters into the actions and suffering of, sufferings of men and undergoes modifications through their responses. In other words, the experience is uh, neither primarily, experience is neither primarily a knowledge affair in which the puzzle revolves around how brute objects uh, insert ideas into our heads, nor is the world a rational whole moving us along to its ideal co uh, conclusion. If the latter were the case, what would the point be of thought? Thinking would be useless. This in turn uh, reflects Dewey's view of thought as a tool human beings use to respond to problematic situations. The third Emersonian premise. According to West, is that the experimental makings, workings, and doings of human beings have been neither adequately understood nor fully unleashed in the modern world. We also find this premise represented in Dewey's work when contending that every action an organism makes transforms its environment, and because many of these consequences harm us, he calls for us to develop our creative or critical intelligence. Dewey says, quote, the extent of an agent's capacity for inference, its power to use a given fact as a sign of something not yet given, measures the extent of its ability systematically to enlarge its control of the future. And for use of the given or finished to anticipate the consequence of processes going on is precisely what it is meant by ideas, by intelligence. It is precisely at this point in Dewey's emphasis on controlling nature where West's criticism emerges. Recognizing Dewey's failure to deal sufficiently with the problem of race, West contends that this failure stems from the optimism central to the Emersonian theodicy. In short, Dewey's latent lack of a tragic sensibility but stresses his blindness to the tragic dimension of American political life. As I mentioned above, others have already provided uh, compelling, in my view, defenses of Dewey's tragic sensibility. Rather than rehearse these arguments, I want to make one observation about Dewey's position before returning to West's prophetic pragmatism. 
If we look closely at the passages that I've suggested reveal Dewey's Emersonianism, it strikes me that a very different interpretation of Dewey is palpable. When asking for people to trust in our capacity to act, he begins with the contention that we know that the universe slays us. Similarly, in the need for a recovery of philosophy, Dewey's plea for, the, uh, for us to use the method of intelligence to better control the future follows his account about the harm that the world does us once we act. In fact, as in, in that essay, he goes uh, so far as to say, quote, given a world like that in which we live, a world in which environ environing changes are partly favorable and partly callously indifferent, and experience is bound to be perspective in import, for any control attainable by the living creature depends upon what is done to alter the state of things, hear it, hear it, Success and failure are the primary categories of life. Achieving of good and averting of ill are its supreme interests. Hope and anxiety are its dominant qualities of experience. What I see here is a thinker who views existence as slaying us and holding on for dear life with the hope that maybe something we do might help make our tomorrows right. However, returning to West's argument, his criticism of Dewey's optimism doesn't end there. Contemplating the pragmatists in light of Abraham Lincoln's profound wrestling with a deep sense of evil that fuels struggle for justice, to quote West, in his essay, Pragmatism and the Sense of the Tragic, West contends that it is here that Dewey and Josiah Royce part ways for the deep sense of evil affects Royce more than it does Dewey. West's turn to Royce here is telling. For instance, looking at Royce's argument in The Problem of Job, he posits his position rejecting the argument that the presence of evil in the world simply, is simply explained by free will alone. This argument never gets to Job's problem that is, he suffers unjustly. Royce feels that his alternative provides the best answer for Job. He states, quote, God is not in ultimate essence another being than yourself. He is the absolute being. You truly are one with God, part of his life. He is the very soul of our soul. And so here's the first truth. When you suffer, your suffering are God's sufferings, not his external work not his external penalty, not the fruit of his neglect, but identically his own personal woe. In you, God himself suffers precisely as you do and has all your concern in overcoming this grief. To justify this statement, Royce argues that God chooses it this way because he chooses his own perfect selfhood. He is perfect. His world is the best possible world, yet all its finite regions know not only of joy but of defeat and sorrow, for thus alone, in the completeness of this eternity, can God in his wholeness be triumphantly perfect. This formulation illuminates an assumption both Royce and West seem to share, namely that despite the tragic nature of 
life, human beings are not alone. God is in charge of the universe, and thus life has meaning, even in the face of pessimism. But more specifically, in Royce's case at least, that God must choose to suffer in order to maintain his, her, his perfection, and more importantly, God must experience evil to eventually overcome it. That, that's the move. For Royce, all evils then are ministerial to the good. The assurance that the absolute will prevail over evil and save humanity is Royce's last bastion of hope against despair or even insanity. It is this Christian picture to which West clings. As he says, quote, Royce holds on to his Christian-like dramatic portrait of reality with its hope for an assurance of ultimate triumph precisely because his sense of evil and the tragic is so deep. Finally, Royce, when positing uh, prophetic pragmatism, I mean, uh, sorry, finally, when positing prophetic pragmatism, West draws on Raymond Williams' distinction between Greek and modern tragedy, saying about modern tragedy that, quote, the context of modern tragedy is a fragmented society with collapsing metaphysical meanings. More pointedly, the notion of the tragic is bound to the idea of human agency. Relying on this conception of modern tragedy, West presents his prophetic pragmatism declaring, the prophetic pragmatist's sense of the tragic highlights the irreducible predicament of unique individuals who undergo dread, despair, disillusionment, disease, and death, and the institutional forms of oppression that dehumanizes people. Tragic thought is not confined solely to the plight of the individual. It also applies to social experiences of resistance, revolution, and, and societal reconstruction. Prophetic pragmatism is a form of tragic thought in that it confronts candidly individual and collective experiences of evil in individuals and institutions with little expectation of ridding the world of all evil. The tragic sense for West is the ability to acknowledge the limits that human endeavors come up against, both individual and political, hence the criticism of the Emersonian theodicy and its optimism. However, rather than responding with submission, struggle must continue while acknowledging the possibility of defeat. He says tenderly, human struggle sits at the center of prophetic pragmatism, a struggle divided by a democratic and libert libertarian vision sustained by moral courage and existential integrity and tempered by the recognition of human finitude and frailty. A picture of contingency indeed. I end with the question though, how can that contingent vision remain when not only will Jesus rise on Easter, but God will overcome evil? Thank you.
I am pleased to be on a panel of these esteemed and brilliant minds. Um, I'm almost tempted to just jump right into the Q&A, but I figured since I did prepare something, I guess I probably should say something. Let's see how this goes. In the American Invasion of Philosophy, Cornell West contends that James's pragmatism is a continuation and expansion of Emerson. West sees James as embodying Emerson's individuality, individualism, and intellectualism, particularly the public intellectualism. Unlike Emerson, West recognizes that James is much more attentive to evil in the world. Evil for James will be expunged because of human, not divine, efforts. In fact, on West's interpretation of James, the presence of evil is the precondition for heroic energy. James is mobilizes by his militaristic rhetoric, such energy for extraordinary moral service in his criticism of US imperialism. Although James's moral critique is important, it does not go far enough for West. It is not political enough. West takes James' moral gradualism to be suffocating political possibilities. It reauthorizes reformist sentiments without revolutionary reach. 15 years later, in an interview with Eduardo Mingueta, West still laments that James and American pragmatism more broadly does not have a structural and institutional critique. West is suspicious of how easily James's pragmatism with his lack of attention to politics can appease and affirm middle-class life and expansionism. Another way of stating the problem that West identifies is that James seems to affirm a Promethean self without affirming a Promethean society, a society that can more radically and rapidly transform itself. What West does not find enough of in James's philosophy of pragmatism, however, can be found in his philosophy of religion, especially his ethics. This is not entirely surprising because unlike James's philosophy of religion, his ethics is given very little attention by scholars. This is in part because it is challenging to identify James's ethics. West's reading of James is no exception. In Evasion, West only makes one passing reference to James's varieties of religious experience and is actually buried in an analysis of James's theory of truth. After such a reference to varieties and a cursory discussion of James on religion, West oddly cites James's will to believe instead. This paper intends to remedy such an imbalanced approach to James's pragmatism. It seeks to identify and explore one significant strand of James's ethics, that is saintliness, and draws connection to West's prophetic pragmatism. This paper seeks to ask, one, how might West's prophetic pragmatism be augmented by a focus and sustained attention to James's saint? And two, how might West's prophetic pragmatist speaks back to James's saint? Like West's prophetic pragmatist, James is saying is committed, actually, to individuality, engages in social criticism, and promotes a democratic moral vision while attuned to the tragic.
This paper then argues that James the Saint's end of varieties anticipates Wesley's prophetic pragmatists. Specifically, James the Saint makes explicit and embodies the Christian character of Wesley's prophetic pragmatism. In this sense, the saint more clearly unveils the moral psychology of the prophetic pragmatism. What's more, on my reading, the work of the saint turns out to be the work of the prophetic pragmatist. I conclude by suggesting that while James the saint already offers much of what is found in Wesley's prophetic pragmatism, the latter can expand the political dimensions of the former when read as a part of the same prophetic tradition. I may not say much about that in the interest of time, we'll see. So let me say something about the features of prophetic pragmatism. Anyone familiar with Wes's writings knows that he constantly laments the spiritual malaise in the United States, especially within American religious life. Just one year prior to American invasion, West opens up his book, Prophetic Fragments, decrying how, and I quote, how American culture attempts to eliminate spiritual depth, disseminate stimulatory surfaces, flatten out transcendence into titillation, and replaces the sense of mystery of existence with that of the self feelings of intensity, usually of an orgiastic sort, end quote. West has always been deeply preoccupied with the America's spiritual state. That preoccupation is still present when he writes evasion just a year later. Although he is primarily interested in offering a political interpretation, reinterpretation of American pragmatism, his concern with the spiritual condition of America underlies his genealogy. And I take West's discourse on quote unquote spiritual depth and spiritual sustenance to be a way to index the moral life of this country and the moral agency of this country's citizens. At the beginning of Evasion, West tells us, and I quote, that his emphasis is on the political and moral side of American pragmatism, end quote. And so the significance of connecting the spiritual to the moral is because this is what feeds the prophetic for West. The spiritual and the moral are two sides of the normative coin of the prophetic. This then explains why Christianity is significant to West's prophetic pragmatism. And the form of Christianity, the form of Christianity that West has in mind is prophetic Christianity, a kind of Christianity that has spiritual depth and moral courage precisely because it evades superficiality and sentimentality and invades the, tra the tragic and the traumatic. West then fuses prophetic Christianity with pragmatism, thereby creating prophetic pragmatism. And so this fusion offers pragmatism what is found in prophetic Christianity. Surprisingly, however, West is too willing to abandon the very thing that he contributes to pragmatism, that is a religious underpinning. According to West, and I quote, Prophetic pragmatism neither requires a religious foundation nor entails a religious perspective. Yet prophetic pragmatism is compatible with certain religious outlooks." End quote. 
And so it is striking that West does not seem to have any problems parting ways with the religious character of prophetic pragmatism when the very modifier prophetic signals its religious origins and impulses. On the term prophetic, West says, and I quote, I have dubbed it prophetic in that it harks back to the Jewish and Christian tradition of prophetic who brought, out, who brought urgent and compassionate critique to bear on the evils of their day. To be sure, there are reasons why West does not want prophetic pragmatism to be inextricably tied to religion. Like what he takes prophetic Christianity to be, he wants prophetic pragmatism to be stripped of static dogmas and decrepit doctrines. He also realizes that his religious tradition could be worn, and so it is a fallibilism that goes all the way down in Cornell's uh, and West's thought, and that there might be other traditions, religious or otherwise, that are just as amenable to prophetic pragmatist outlook. So overall, the role of religion in pragmatism for West requires epistemic humility, dexterity, and expansiveness. Of course, West does have some reasons for holding on to the religious dimensions of pragmatism. In fact, he offers two reasons, one existential and the other political. First, the existential one. West's prophetic pragmatism is Christian insofar as Christianity is a means for him to is a means for him to keep his sanity in the face of the absurdity. Second, the political reason. For West, Christianity sensitizes one to the plight of the oppressed, as well as the political possibilities within the tradition and practices of ordinary oppressed people. Unfortunately, West does not linger on these two reasons. The impression he leaves the reader is that religion is significant, but not necessary. So he does not fight enough for his necessity. The fight he is willing to wage is primarily on existential and political grounds instead of on a moral theological one. More could be said here, but in the interest of time, I must point you to uh, Victor Anderson, who is presiding this, um, this session. To his seminal essay is Cornell West among the theologians, the shadow of the divine in the religious thought of Cornell West, which takes us a similar line of inquiry. And so for West, the religious dimensions are dispensable. Whereas for James' saint, they're indispensable. And so it is this ind indispensability that I want to explore. And, so, and, and by way of exploration, I want to ask these sets of questions. What might be lost when West too easily give up the religious character of his prophetic pragmatism? How might West avoid reducing Christianity into psychology, or more crudely, a personal safety net? In other words, to what degree does West actually evade the prophetic theological content of Christianity? So let me say something about the figure of prophetic pragmatism. So after having laid out what I take to be a critical features of um, uh, prophetic pragmatism, let me just say something about the figure of prophetic pragmatism. And so the, and so the entirety of the invasion, of the American invasion, is an impressive an impressive lineup of representative figures, chapter by chapter. Yet the final chapter of the book, which happens to end on prophetic pragmatism, is without a representative figure of prophetic pragmatism. In fact, in effect, West ironically creates a vacuum that he does not feel. If the features of prophetic pragmatism, if the features of pragmatism requires an account of its figures, which West genealogy seems to suggest, 
then why does West articulate the features of prophetic pragmatism without the figure of prophetic pragmatism? Wouldn't the, wouldn't the idea of prophetic pragmatism be helped by having a model around which to gather our thoughts? So we're left to ask ourselves, what does the prophetic pragmatist look like? This question is important in two ways. First, it shifts our attention away from ideology to the individual. This begins to surface what, uh, what's behind, this begins to surface what's been lurking behind the ideology of prophetic pragmatism, and that is the individual of the prophetic pragmatism. And so for West, hardly anyone seems to qualify as a prophetic pragmatist, not even Martin Luther King. And in fact, this seems to make the prophetic pragmatist a saint, one who cannot represent or even be emulated. To be sure, the prophetic pragmatist does take some shape in the figure of the organic intellectual. However, the, the organic intellectual for West, and I quote, neither, need be neither religious nor linked to religious institutions. Trade unions, community groups, and political formations also suffice, end quote. And so therefore, it seems, the figure that is lost in the forging of prophetic pragmatism is found in the figure of James's saint. This now brings me to the second reason why the question of what does the prophetic pragmatist look like is significant. And the question also turns our attention to the marks of, prophetic, of the prophetic pragmatist, or as I am arguing, the ethical practices of the saint. To restate the second reason in the form of a question is, what is saintliness? In the varieties of religious experience, James defines saintliness as the collective name for the ripe fruits of religion in a character. He then adds that the saintly character is a character for which spiritual emotions are the habitual center of personal energy. And so through these vehement emotions, the saint models the releasing of a latent surplus agency, what I'm calling an impassioned creative mood in and from us. And so these passions disclose knowledge about ourselves and our world that is not yet known to us. They reveal what is latent from birth. They allow the tidal wave of the impassioned critical mood to rush over our, com our conventionalities, as James says, our shyness, laziness, um, stinginess, our demands for precedent and um, permission, for guarantee and, and surety, our small suspicions and timidities and despair. And so the, the vehement passions of, of the religious sort are the preconditions for and the means through which the latent surplus agency is achieved. Such agency is to be at, to be, such agency is to act beyond the imaginings of oneself. And so let me put this in, automo in automotive terms. It is the gear that would exceed the passing gear. You know what I'm talking about when you try to kick that thing in the high gear, you, you, the car goes in. It's, it's the gear that actually goes beyond that. And so perhaps then the impassioned creative mood is what makes possible supererogatory acts. And in fact, this mood reveals the inextricable connection between religion and ethics, between the wider universe and the moral arc we impose on the universe. So for James, the faith of the religious person as well as the saint is an ethical matter. Michael Slater 
rightly notes that James, and I quote, religious and moral views ran in both directions, leading him to stress not only the moral value and function of religious belief, but also the claim that the highest forms of moral agency and human flourishing can be achieved only through leading a religious life. And so the highest forms of moral agency and flourishing are principally, that was end quote, and so the highest and moral forms of um, human flourishing, here this is me, are principally exemplified in the religious life of the saint, precisely because, as James says, the highest flights of charity, devotion, trust, patience, bravery, to which the wings of human nature have spread themselves, have been flown from religious ideals. End quote. And so therefore, the religious life improves our natural capacity for moral agency. It morally energizes the self. Moreover, it is the means by which the self maximizes its highest moral potential. And so then religious emotion actually then inaugurate unprecedented supernumerial virtues in the self for which natural morality can only hope to unleash. Such virtues are the moral products of the impassioned creative moral mood. And in this sense, these impassioned virtues begin to specify, begin to specify the forms of moral agency. And so James then argues, and I quote, Human charity, which we find in all the saints, and the great excess of it, which we find in some saints, is a genuinely creative force, tending to make a real degree of virtue, which it alone is ready to assume as possible. The saints are authors, increasers of the good." End quote. And so the ethical practices of the saints are world transformative. They have a unique role to play in society, James believed. And as Slater notes, and I quote, when we consider the history of religions, James thinks that the saints have introduced new and better ideas into the world, more frequently and successful than any other class of human beings, end quote. And so the, so the saints, they can do and have done what no one else can do, insofar as they alone can reach the highest forms of moral agency, they can then be a genuinely creative social force by propelling society to the moral heights it cannot reach on its own. And so in beautifully articulating the social role and effects of saintly virtues, let me offer you once more some of the words of James here because I think this is actually encapsulates, I think, the sentiment behind uh, this paper. And I just like to read James. So bear with me. Like the single drops which sparkle in the sun as they are flung far ahead of the advancing edge of a wave crest or of a flood, they show the way and are forerunners. The world is not yet with them, so they often seem in the midst of the world's affair to be preposterous. Yet, they are impregnators of the world, vivifiers and animators of potentialities of goodness, which but for them would lie forever dormant. It is not possible to be quite as mean as we naturally are when they have passed before us. One fire kindles another, and without their overtrust and human worth, 
which they show the rest of the world would lie in spiritual stagnancy, end quote. A lot can be said about this, and particularly all the Emersonian sort of like reverberations there, um, but I hasten to, um, to bring this thing to a close. And so here, James makes clear, the saint lives ahead of the world. They not only pave the moral trail on which the world must tread, but also releases the world's potentialities of goodness so that it might get on that proper moral trail. In short, for James, and I quote, the saintly group of qualities is indispensable to the world's welfare. However, this does not mean that saintly virtues always lead to success. In fact, according to James, the, the saint might waste his tenderness and be duped and the victim of his charitable fever. But saintly love requires courage because, as James says, if things are ever to move upward, someone must be ready to take the first step and assume the risk of it. But nevertheless, James still believed that the general function of the saint's charity and social evolution is vital and essential, and is the salvation of the world is indeed in the hands of the saint. And so, let me just end with, with, this, with these few thoughts. Because that's actually the work of the saint, namely her salvific work, is also the work of the pragmatist. In James's book entitled Pragmatism, actually written out of varieties, James explicitly connects the salvation of the world to the work of pragmatism, precisely because for him, and I quote, it clears the pragmatism, it is clear that pragmatism must incline towards meliorism. Meliorism is what it practically means to say that the salvation of the world is possible for James, that it is the midway between pessimism and optimism in that it treats salvation as, necess as neither necessary nor impossible. It treats it, as po it treats it as a possibility which becomes more and more of a probability the numerous, the actual conditions of salvation become." End quote. And so put differently is that the pragmatic character of religious feud or saintly virtue such as love and hope is made explicit in James's notion of salvation by the saint, like the pragmatist commitment to meliorism. And so pragmatism understood in this way then extends the responsibility of, of social salvation to everyone. And as even Slater suggests as well is that, and I quote, even if, even if not all of us can or should be saints, James thinks moral progress seems to require that there be at least some individuals whose moral strenuousness is capable of exhorting the rest of us to greater levels of moral commitment and whose moral insights lead us to affirm qualitatively better moral ideals, end quote. And so if the, moral, if the saint is a moral exhorter to a higher self, then the prophetic pragmatist, an ordinary non-religious person, can be understood as a moral nudger. And so James here arguably James's saint not only appears to prefigure Cornell West's prophetic pragmatist, but also more adequately captures West's himself, as well as the moral substructures of his prophetism. 
And so one fundamental reason why West gives for locating prophetic pragmatism in the Christian tradition is because the tradition helps them on an existential level to remain sane. But this is really important to, to, to come back to as I, as I close, is that that is the same sort of reason uh, for Christianity keeping them sane. This is the same reason that James offers himself. This is the same reason that James gives for maintaining his religious outlook and impulses in light of the overwhelming tragic character of life. And so the saint unveils the interior, interior landscape of the prophetic pragmatist. In other words, what I've hoped to, to, dem to have demonstrated is that the moral psychology of the prophetic pragmatist turns out to be better represented in the impassioned moral life of the saint. Like the prophetic pragmatist, the saint is attuned to unprecedented tragedy and unbounded triumph. The saints makes legible the Christian character of prophetic pragmatism and more ably embody the Christian faith of the pragmatist. And so James the Saint pushes West's prophetic pragmatism to further explore the moral theological possibilities of his religious tradition. And the saint helps the prophetic pragmatist to see the moral heroic energies he already possesses have theological depth. And so to put it differently, the saint gives the prophetic pragmatist not only the theological right to believe, but also the moral courage to explore the theological significance of the wider universe. The saint is always running ahead of the evidence, always running ahead of social analysis and criticism, always running ahead of present political arrangements. The current state of affairs do not tell the saint what is possible, but only what has been possible. Unlike the prophetic pragmatist who denies utopian perfectionism, the saint opens our pores into the reign of the utopian kingdom to come. Thank you. to thank all of, all of our panelists uh, who presented this afternoon. Uh, we've had four papers, and as usually the case, uh, the, some of the themes and uh, the thoughts of the first panelists kind of get forgotten. So I'm going to give our panelists a chance to kind of reiterate the main uh, point of your paper before we yeah, open up to conversations, okay? Yes, my paper um, emphasized uh, the methodological significance of Cornell West radical holism and the fact that I think um, it opens pathways for future uh, investigations beyond the particular path that he charted, but that West also invites us to do that work um, in a spirit of humility. So my paper attempted to think through uh, Robert Gooding Williams' criticism of Cornell West uh, in hopes that they can um, be seen as not only committed to the same um, political um, practices and such, but that they have um, a similar reason for doing so, which is methodological and I think which um, gives us not a new understanding of Foucault, but another way to think about Foucault um, that is quite a bit different than the way in which Gooding Williams characterizes him. Um, yeah, so for me, um, I was looking at the ways in which uh, West introduces his prophetic pragmatism via a critique of John Dewey's lack of a tragic sensibility and wanted to raise the question about how can prophetic pragmatism be tragic 
uh, have a tragic sensibility if, uh, you know, Jesus is rising anyway and God is going to overcome evil and suffering anyway. Well, you guys have just hurt me, so. <laughs> I'm going to open up. We have about 30 minutes for uh, questions and responses. And so there are two mics in the middle of the uh, aisles. Uh, they're for people like me who just can't hear. So, uh, so everybody can get the benefit of the question responses. I ask you to use the mics that's in the middle of the aisle. Don't everybody hop off at once. <laughs> Questions, responses. Think that I might fumble my way into a question, but I want to begin by thanking all the panelists for their presentations, and uh, I especially would like to uh, thank Professor Grandy, uh, Granby, sorry, uh, for doing a wonderful job of giving us a sophisticated account of how Cornell West's uh, evasions does pivot on epistemology in a really interesting sort of way. Uh, I also appreciate uh, his account of the death and generosity of, of how Cornell reads people, including those with whom he disagrees. And so let me sort of work my way to the question. Um, I wish the Cornell was here because actually this is a question I should put to him. <laughs> and in fairness, I probably should ask the question with him present, but he's not here. Uh, so how can I do this? Well, let, let me begin by saying that the, the most important thing I think I ever learned from Cornell West, the single most important thing, is that when we're engaged in passionate critique of someone, especially when we're engaged in passionate critique of them, that we should keep track of their humanity, their dignity, and their fallibility, uh, their susceptibility to, to error. That is the single most important thing I think that I ever learned from Cornell West. And it seems to me, though, that in the recent phase of his work as a public intellectual and as an activist, that there have been more than a few occasions uh, when his rhetoric has tiptoed to the edge, if not gone over the edge, of losing track, if not of the humanity, certainly the dignity and the fallibility uh, other persons that he's criticizing. Uh, this is different from the Cornell West that we encounter uh, in, inv in evasions. At least it seems different from the Cornell West that we encounter in evasions. And I guess my question is this. Uh, do you agree with that characterization of the current Cor Cornell West in relationship to evasions? And if you do agree, uh, what should, sense should we make of that? <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Thanks for the question. <laughs> no, I, I think that there has been a noticeable shift that we can chart specifically with respect to generosity. 
the generosity that's on display in evasion and the generosity that hasn't quite been on display um, in public in recent years. I think, I think Wes would respond by saying that, um, <clears throat> that these are sort of you know, catastrophic um, conditions um, and that now, at this particular moment, and especially the previous eight years, um, just simply haven't been um, the time for polite speech. And that his rhetorical um, excesses um, um, were perhaps um, initiated with a kind of pragmatic bent. But then where I would want to push back is to say, well, you know, there's something um, you know, not terribly pragmatic about undermining your own authority that you yourself have accrued over time as a generous social critic, um, such that your message and voice may not even be able to be heard or properly interpreted given the particular rhetorical move that one is engaged in. Um, so yeah, that's what I, that's what I would say. Um, I mean, I, I mean, as you know, you know, I work on the ethics of social criticism, um, and I, um, well, I'll just leave it there. Yeah. <laughs> Should I wait for my question, or do you, anybody else on that? No. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be foolish. Um, this is just thought that just occurred to me. I mean, there, there. I mean, if you look at, you know, how Cornell responds to his critics actually in print early on, like, um, so if you take, for instance, like, um, you know, the reader that's on Cornell, the edited volume on just a collective of essays by various scholars, some of whom are in the room on Cornell. Um, you know, if, if you look at how Cornell responds in the afterward, just this is just one way to kind of index this. I mean, there are some places, it seems to me, where, Cornell's, uh, you know, um, counter um, point, you know, he kind of, you know, brushes some things off pretty fast and like pretty swiftly, right, in ways that actually, if we think about, like, those sorts of moments, you know, let's just say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, what have you, you know, um, and now, right, there are some interesting sorts of continuities in terms of how he's able to respond to criticism. Right of a, of, a, of a particular sort of kind, so um, so yeah. I mean, so part of what I, part of my reason for for at least placing my finger on that because I wanted to at least you know sit in an academic context in which right criticism is taking place, and not just the type of criticism that happens you know publicly in a blogosphere or on a Facebook post or in the Huffington Post or what have you. So I want to thank you all for a great um, panel. Uh, my question is. Well, first, a, a comment. I, I uh, heard you all speaking as um, committed to a sense of progress and also to uh, speaking from a place of humility. It's a pretty nice combination. How do you think that kind of stance fits into the current dialogue in this country? which does not seem to me at least to uh, embody that 
kind of sense, uh, sensibility. Well, uh, thank you for your question. Um, yeah, so I think it, there are a number of things. Um, and one is thinking about how social criticism works. Um, some of the problems with it is, right, how, how well does one have to know a tradition? What, what, what's the posture of the critic to the tradition before the complaint could be rendered? So um, I do think uh, even though we all wanted, you know, so our form of piety today was to uh, critique West. Um, and, but that then translates into, uh, to generate the criticism in part precisely by demonstrating, right, that we have also tried to do the work to understand where he's coming from. Um, so in terms of what that means for how we bridge the divides that the, we now face in the U.S.? Well, I think that we have to be multiple uh, strategically. Uh, so the sense of urgency that uh, Cliff highlighted, I think, really does call sometimes for impolite speech, uh, while simultaneously um, we ha still have to be strategic at times to break the divide, to show that we recognize what the conditions are, right? We have to understand the tradition before we can critique it as well. So, so I think it's a both and. It's, we have to just be multiple. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too, um, I just don't share the sense of uh, progress um, or progressivism um, in any way. So I just want to highlight that. Um, I have a couple of responses and a question because I, I wish Cornell was here also, but to that, to that being said, to this end of the table, I understand that the ultimate pro prophetic practice is Jesus Christ himself. And I, I appreciate the the level to which the two speakers on the end, which includes James's saint, who I also believe is embodied in Christ, is the epitome of where this is supposed to be taken us critically, because as you have all kind of intimated that this is something that is, has to be resolved with regard to the next four years, through that pragmatic experience of Christ. That's just number one. With regard to the second speaker, I was wondering if you had taken the time to compare the Foucault to the Girard experience with regard to the social implications that are going to be happening for sure within the next four years. I understand that Cornel West can be overly exuberant in this critique of some of the political things that have happened within the last four years. However, that is going to be even more important as we go into the next four. And I believe that this pragmatic, the prophetic pragmatism that we are now experiencing through Cornell West will be even more important as we deal with that as academics. 
to be able to show people how to have that voice, to be able to show our perspective individualism within the expression of pragmatism. And that's kind of really what I just wanted to say. I just, I appreciate how we have injected the, the divinity within the, the critique. I have a question, uh, but first I want to thank you all for your, uh, your reading of what was uh, obviously a generative book in your formation and uh, what was and has been definitely generative in mine. So thank you for that. Um, my question is sort of how to take uh, an influence, a singular influence like West or like this book um, and to take it into your study and then to this idea of urgency or this moment of urgency, balance like, you know, the, the kind of deep sense of commitment to engaging with, uh, you know, ethical interlocutors while also being attuned to the urgency of the moment. Um, but knowing that your response would be, need to be grounded in the sustained commitment, you know, on the other hand, to that kind of longer sort of practice and um, doesn't necessarily have to be, um, yeah, well, I'd, I'm kind of curious to, to hear as, as many of you as possible talk to that. <laughs> so the question is, how can we relate um, our readings or interpretations of, of Professor West to the urgency of the moment? Or in what ways have we, how can we incorporate that into our own um, practices and scholarship? Yeah, and especially, you know, giving calls to, uh, for people of color, ha have, have more empathy or have, have a deeper understanding of, you know, working class, white, middle, uh, middle American culture or and you know, like the, the kind of generosity that's being asked, while at the same time there's, you know, there has been and there is definitely a, a renewed sense of urgency in this moment. Yeah, so I, I don't think that this text will, will help much with that. Um, I, I may be the minority report here, but I don't think this text will help much with that, uh, particularly the way in which he, he lays out his genealogy. Um, I think it could, um, but I think this text won't help much with that. Um, what certainly embodies um, what, we've, what we've heard, generosity, right, charitable um, readings and such, but I just don't think this text is going to help much with that. Yeah, I guess I'll Yeah, um, and there's a sense in which um, the argument that I try to make with the saint and trying to suggest that the saint really um, is a way to kind of anticipate the prophetic pragmatist. I mean, there's a, some unintended consequences by drawing this connection um, that at least I myself wouldn't want to embrace. Uh, but at least let me say something about at least what I do want to affirm before I say something about the unintended consequences that I want to kind of at least attenuate. Um, yeah, I mean, I think in this moment, I mean, I, I do think it, we have to return 
I mean, I think, call, I think you know, um, Wes is always kind of uh, calling us back to, um, to, to really reflect on our moral motivations, right? And so, like, and to ask us to take a self-examination into the types of self we, we understand ourselves to be, but also, like, the type of world we want to create, right? And, and the type of world we want to create is really linked to, you know, um, you know, how we treat each other, right? And so, so there's really some fundamental questions about um, what kinds of people we are, right? And the kind, and, 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 and the emphasis on kind here is, is, is of, a, of a certain kind of ethical kind, right? What type of relationship do we want to have with each other? And so, um, so I mean, I understand, you know, Wes, and I think this is why I reach for the saint here, because it really brings into the fore, right, uh, some significant sort of moral questions. I mean, you know, what hangs in the balance, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, this country is a collectively, but also what hangs in the balance are individual souls, right? And so there's a sense in which, right, the saint is actually made possible through a certain type of conversion, right? And so that conversion sort of experience, right, is this rebirthing, right, re it actually brings renewed moral energies Right, and so, and those, those energies that we ourselves did not see in our, did not see in us before, right, a certain type of conversion. Now, I'm in some ways very skeptical of a certain type of individual sort of conversion sort of narrative and the need or such, so this is why there's some unintended consequences that come along with that, right, and so, and this is why I tried to suggest, right, the saint is not just concerned about, James the saint that is, just not concerned about just individuals and the kind of individuality just kind of uh, where people are just deeply preoccupied with themselves, but also uh, society's betterment, right? And so, uh, so the questions of, and concerns about kind of amelioration, right, is, is, not, is, is always kind of um, moving outward, away from oneself, right, into the world, right? And so, um, so it is in, in that sense, I think, right, um, you know, um, I want to kind of avoid you know, if, I could, if I'm understood it, uh, to be saying this much um, in the paper, to avoid some of the, um, just um, some moralism, right? And so, because I think, I don't want to get any, uh, I don't want to get into too much trouble, but like I do think there are some dangers too of being too focused on um, individual piety, right? And so making sure that, you know, I'm doing the right thing in a particular sort of places, right? And so, because that can also create a certain type of quietism Right, and so and I, that's why I, I, I mean I didn't have all the time. I didn't have enough time to lay out these things out. And these are some these are some of the worries that that um, Professor West has about James that actually could you know be too insular, too kind of inward focused. But you know one of the things I didn't have a chance to really talk about much is that the type of reformist, you know, um, libertarian sort of vision that 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 is true for the prophetic practice is also true for James. And 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 this is innovation. I mean I can give you page numbers if you like. But all that to say is that, like, um, I think prophetic pragmatism as a certain type of resource for this moment is actually we have to try to hold both, right, you know, the necessity of um, self and social transformation, right, that, that whatever social transformation is possible, right, is going to require some type of, like, transformation of the self, right? And so, um, and so the thing, it becomes like a model for, for how, like, to try to um, exemplify how I think you know, Wes goes about articulating that, but I'm trying to provide a different sort of language and, and resources for within the tradition 
for how, for how that is actually done. Just very briefly on your question about praxis and the, um, what I'm sensing as sort of the contradictions um, that we might confront in this process of engaging in uh, personal um, as well as social transformation. I mean, there are distinctions to be drawn, and I think West's contextualism and his holism points us to these distinctions, which is to say the difference between the politics of holding each other accountable and the politics of intellectual generosity, as well as the ethics of generosity and gracefulness. And I think that politically in certain public spaces, it's not clear to me that the ethics of gracefulness um, is sort of expedient um, when it comes to trying to show a certain empathy um, to folks who are, have shown themselves to be committed um, to a certain kind of um, maliciousness. Um, because, oh, sorry. Uh, now I was appreciating what you were saying. Um, my question is to try, well, to push people to try to get a little more descriptive about what it is they take to be the prophet. Um, I did not recognize the Cornell West I know in many of the descriptions that I heard. Um, I guess partly my concern is how do we know the prophet who James puts forward as the person who is able to somehow, who knows how, able to move people and make changes in the world. How do we know the difference between the prophet and the demagogue? Yeah, I mean, and this is where I think, um, I mean, James is kind of wrestling with this in varieties, right? I mean, you know, all the candidates he lift up as prophets, right? He wants to um, subject them through certain types of tests, all right? So, I mean, I think, you know, we got to, you know, um, I mean, and this is where James is in some ways um, indebted to kind of sort of kind of like biblical biblical texts here, and that is that we know them by their fruits, you know, that they bear. And so, like, I mean, we don't know at face value, right, who's, you know, who's who, right? And so, but we know them by the character of their fruits, Right, so, and so those fruits are in some particular tradition, then I would guess. Yeah, and so I mean, and and to the degree to which you know that tradition can be made intelligible to right any type of observer, right, then we can be able to discern and 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 decipher whether or not those particular fruits are actually you know something that might be socially useful. Well, fruits are fruits. I mean, we how do we know that fruits are good fruits or bad fruits? Well, that's yeah, or so, strange fruits or whatever. Yeah, so but I think so. So what I'm suggesting is that I think you know that those fruits have to be determined based upon how uh, productive they are uh, when they are deployed and when they, and you know when they actually appear, right? So I mean, fruits by themselves, you're absolutely right. They don't tell us anything about like uh, whether or not we want them or not. I mean, so I mean, a tree can produce all sorts of things, but but the fact that the tree produces fruit, right, is is uh, is not very useful. Now, if we take a bite out of the what is actually produced like an apple or a pear, and it's like, oh, I mean, this actually tastes pretty good, or actually, this actually nourishes my, you know, uh, my body in various sorts of ways, right? But if I take a bite and I, you know, regurgitate or I feel sick or, you know, like, then we can be able to make some type of, I think, judgments about, you know, whether or not we want to continue to, you know, whether or not these particular fruits are valuable, right? And so, I mean, all I'm just really suggesting is that. Like, I mean, this is kind of Jesus here, right? You know, we actually have to, 
I mean, there's some testing here, right? It's nothing, this is no, it's nothing a priori, right? By, so by positive, there's nothing a priori that we can have up and running and to say, okay, well, this is good at all times or, or most of the time. No, we just have to like, I mean, this thing is highly contextual, right? And so, yeah. Well, I would, Maybe that's not sufficient. I would, I would offer to counter that in the American Invasion of Philosophy, perhaps West is putting forward a list of people who sort of seem like um, people who are, who are moving society in the direction he deems to be productive, that he can only lay out that direction by claiming his own contingency and the, the contingency of his, what he sees as values and goods, and that um, those, they, they, they come from multiple sources. I think we could sit here and name some saints that are not modeled on Jesus, um, that we might actually all be able to agree in the room we're saintly people. Oh, that's, yes, absolutely. So I don't want to be mistaken about that, I think, for, for Wes or even for James. Like, I mean, this could come from a variety of traditions, secular or otherwise. I mean, I mean, Wes says this very explicitly in evasion, right, in the, in the prophetic pragmatism section, right? And Wes, I mean, sorry, and, and James is actually says, listen, some of these particular virtues that a saint have are, actually, are also natural, right? And so, but, but the saint actually kind of um, stimulate these sort of natural sort of like, you know, um, virtues and dispositions and ways in which, right, that if it's not tapped into some type of like demore some wider universe, it may not necessarily be uh, readily available or be released. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to disagree with James even on that point, right? So, but all I'm, I'm just bringing James in as, a, as a useful sort of like tool and, and frame and figure to be able to add more sort of depth to the figure of the prophetic practices, actually to give us something to latch on to and to give us some type of like moral compass right, that I think is actually buried, you know, within sort of like Cornell's sort of prophetic Christianity that's actually in the back of his prophetic pragmatism. And so, you know, and I think, so, and this is why Cornell goes existential, right, you know, because listen, this is a tradition in which I, he locates himself. And so he's perfectly fine to throw Gromsky and some others, right, you know, who, you know, plenty of like atheists kind of, you know, line, you know, you know, yes, and line up, yeah, so. Well, maybe others have thoughts. Right. Okay. Thank you, thank you for, for, for a provocative and informative panel. Um, I have a little cold, but, but uh, you guys have got me thinking. Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just trying to anticipate how Cornell West would respond to the papers. Um, and so let me just ask a couple of questions. And, and these, I'm not trying to, to, to mimic him or anything in this way or try to, try to sound like him or anything. But um, so in terms of, 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 of the claim about Foucault. What do we do with Cornell's rendering of, or Cornell's criticism of Foucault as anti-romantic? And the importance of third wave romanticism at the conclusion of the text and why Roberto Unger shows up. What is going on there? Uh, there's a way in which uh, my good friend Robert Gooding Williams kind of oftentimes misses some of the subtleties of other arguments that fall, fall into his view. And I'm just wondering, what does the romantic strand in evasion, how does it impact his radical holism? How does it impact the way in which you might be reading him? And what does it mean that at the end of that text, he commends what he calls this third wave romanticism coming out of his reading uh, with, with Unger? That's the first question. Second question has to do with how might we think about, and this comes to the two of you, 
how might we think about Cornell's insistence that he finds in the stories of Christianity uh, something compelling? Right? But he doesn't necessarily concede to, 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 the, you know, to the truthfulness of, of, of its more fundamental claims. Right? So what does it mean to suggest that you know, Cornell has, and I've, I've made this criticism of him before, that he has uh, uh, in the background this tragic vision uh, but he's able to put it for, put forward uh, its importance because at the end of the day he has his Christian commitments. But you know, Bill Hart wrote an essay a long time ago on Between Rorty's Rock and Harawas's Hard Place, or is it the other way around, where he tries to think about the ways in which um, uh, Cornell West invokes religious narratives or Christian narratives, and that they're not really as contentful as we as we might be attributing to it. Right? And on the heels of that question. Um, sorry to ask so many, Victor. Thank you for letting me ask them. Um, yeah. Um, how are you thinking about the religious in William James? Because it seems to me that it comes out looking a little too, too Christian, even though it bears the imprimatur of Christianity. Whenever I teach William James, all my Christian students realize he's not the friend that they thought he was. <laughs> Um, and so, what, how are you thinking, of, and this, you see how this connects with the way in which Cornell invokes Christian stories, right? What are we talking about when we talk about his Christianity? What are we talking about when we talk about, right, this, this religious backdrop? Um, and perhaps there might be some connection to think about the kind of sequence of argument moving from, uh, you know, happy-minded, you know, healthy-mindedness to sick soul to mm -hmm. conversion to saintliness. Mm -hmm. How is saintliness, saintliness functioning? Right, in the overall arg arc of the argument of variety. So those are all the... Yeah, so I agree um, that it's as if Robert Gooding Williams may not have read right the last, last part of the book. Um, so I, I have essentially no disagreements with, with, your, um, with your claim. I mean, Professor West uh, leverages three criticisms of Foucault, and Professor Gooding Williams doesn't doesn't mention those at all. So it's as if, again, Gooding Williams just more or less ignores that. I mean, I think he has um, good re well, I'm not saying his reasons are good for doing so, but within his crit criticism, he thinks they're imminent. He thinks they're imminent to Cornell's um, narrative. And I, I tried to, to call some of that into question. Whether or not it worked is, is another uh, matter. So um, I'll, I'll be really quick. Two things, um, because I want to hear Jeff's question. Um, so two things really quickly, because I want to hear Jeff's question. Uh, one, I, I think, so, so I end with the question rather than a claim, precisely because I want to hear how, how, do, you, how do you have Jesus, story or not? He is going to rise on Easter Sunday and a tragic vision. So I'm here, here I'm just being uh, George Steiner and saying that right, Christianity cannot have a tragic sense. It ends in glory. All right. So, you know, I still think that we can have 364 Saturdays. Easter is still going to come next year. But, 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 but anyhow, uh, to, it's, it's the, but the second one, the, se, the, but the, the second one, um, and I think this is actually the kind of better response, is he, it's the turn to Royce that, I raised, that made me raise the question there. 
right? So it wasn't just kind of staying in evasion and raising the question there around stories, it was the turn to Royce. But, 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 so Royce is not in this text. No. Okay. But I bring it in. Okay. Um, so I, mean, I, I would, I mean, I would, I would submit that, um, and Professor Stout, I think, can speak to this. I mean, Cornell's theology, insofar as he has one, is quite Bardian. Now, he, he will, right? So huh? I, was, I was wondering about your invocation of, of Royce with respect to what he would, what he may or may not um, endorse. Uh, so I, I want to hear more from you about that. I'm not saying he would disagree, but I, I, I would, I would um, maybe caution you to say that whatever he has in print, right, that is gesturing towards something theological, um, I, I don't think it's it's of, of Royce. So we could talk. We could talk. We should. We should. But, we should. but, but Jeff, I, I'm sure okay. Jeff gets his okay. question. I'll come back to you. I, I would like to go back to. Can you hear me? Yeah. I'd like to go back to uh, Bill Hart's extremely important question. And I'm feeling as much difficulty in addressing it as Bill felt in raising it. But let me say this. Really, maybe three points. One is that I think we have to think seriously about, uh, we have to do a power analysis of the circumstances under which Cornell has said the things some people would wish he, he would take back. Mm -hmm. Okay? And we have to be serious about what's worth saving in the motivations that led him to say those things. Mm -hmm. And what's worth saving has everything to do with his deep concern on good grounds that a black presidency and a black meritocracy among the black intellectuals and an increasing commodification of status and culture was actually destroying the capacity of black prophetic tradition to speak truth to power on issues that needed to be addressed during a black presidency. Okay. So maybe there are four or five statements that he said, but let's think, let's think about what, what led him to say those things. That's a matter of taking it up to 85 decibels after saying it at 84, a hundred times, a thousand times being dismissed, not getting on the news, not having the issues that he was trying to raise put in, uh, marginalized, and then he takes it up one more decibel, and then that deauthorizes him. So here's what I want to say. I, I would like to take some of those statements and their exact formulation back myself. What I do not want to do is to participate in the deauthorization of the person who had the bravery and sometimes the rashness to take those issues forward and make us think about them and knowing that it was at his own expense. And he has been trashed mercilessly since then. And if we can't put it with that much passion, then there's something wrong with us. Next point, 
Last point. After all this bloodshed, and the, this, is, this is spiritual bloodshed among, among people I care deeply about, and not only Cornell, people who are having trouble talking to one another again after all this. We are at a moment when the left, the religious left, the collaborators with the religious left like myself, need to reconstitute ourselves. And that's going to take some rituals of truth-telling to one another and confession and forgiveness, or we are not going to be able to reconstitute the left at a moment when it's an absolute matter of life and death that that happened. Thank our panelists um, for the presentation of your papers and a very deep conversation. There's much at stake in how we think about prophetic pragmatism, how we think about our lives together, and I want to thank you for helping us to think about that.